what can we do every day to try and elevate our game, right? What can we do to to elevate not just our game, but to inspire everyone around us as restaurateurs or cooks or chefs to inspire them to elevate, inspire them to be better every single day. And I, t- I tell my staff every single day at lineup that if we're not better every single day, we're not doing our job. If we can come to work and enjoy what we do every day, this, that's amazing. And we'll be better just in general because of that. Every amazing flavor is an amazing human who has perfected their craft. Welcome to Flavors Unknown, a series of inspirational conversations with renowned culinary leaders. Discover how their cultural identity shapes their creative process with your host, Emmanuel. Hello, everyone. Today's introduction is a bit longer because this is episode 100 of the Flavors Unknown podcast. I cannot believe that I reached the number 100. I started the show back in September 2018, and we are in the fourth seasons of the show. So first, I want to thank all the people who listen to the show and who engage with me on Instagram or Facebook at Flavors Unknown. I love to read your thoughts and feedback. And I also want to thank all my 100 guests who made the show what it is today. The guest today is pastry chef Alisa Gangeri from Buttermilk Ranch in Nashville. We talk about laminated pastry, the trend in croissants, her mentors, Frank Volkomer and Antonio Bashur, and creating new concepts in pastry with a specific focus on a product called The Cube, which is served at Buttermilk Ranch in Nashville. I am your host, Emmanuel LaRoche. I have been in the food industry for more than 20 years, both in Europe and in the US. And every other week, I have genuine conversations with acclaimed chefs, specialist chefs, and mixologists from around the country. Please follow us wherever you listen to podcasts and sign up for our newsletter at flavorsunknown.com. You will receive the digital recipe book with more than 20 recipes shared by some of the chefs featured in my upcoming book, Conversations Behind the Kitchen Door. And now, please welcome pastry chef Alisa Gangeri. Hi, chef. How are you? I'm very good. Thank you. How are you? I'm very good. I'm very excited to have you on the show. So thanks for finding the time to spend like a little hour with me. You're very welcome. I'm happy to be here. Not too long ago, I had the chance to taste a lot of your pastry creations at Buttermilk Ranch in in Nashville. So where does your passion for laminated pastry come from? So I graduated from the Culinary Institute of America, and my mentor, who is also my consulting partner now, I'm lucky enough to have a certified master pastry chef, Frank Volkomer, as my mentor and friend. but. My passion for laminated pastry was always there. I mean, I worked on a lot of fine dining, but he was somebody that I always obviously looked up to, hence why he was my mentor. But he, I had the opportunity to take partnership with him at a chocolate mill, which was his own bakery, his own shop in upstate New York. I was currently living in Manhattan and I was 
loving everything about Manhattan. I was just a New Yorker and will always be a New Yorker. And I crazily turned it down and did not partner with him. And I just didn't think I would be able to live in upstate New York. And I just, you know, it wasn't in the cards for me in the moment, but I almost regretted it because I knew how much laminated pastry he was doing. He was someone I looked up to. He was someone I learned from. And I never really had the opportunity to do my own thing in New York when it came to full-on bakery on the scale that we do it at Buttermilk Ranch in Nashville. So when you say that you learn a lot from him when it comes to laminated pastry, so what, what did you learn from him? Obviously, he's a certified master pastry chef. So he's taught me everything from sugar show pieces, chocolate show pieces, laminated pastries, entremets. You know, he is full all around real true mentor. But his passion for laminated pastry got me really inspired. And it also got me, you know, inspired to work with Antonio Bature. And once I worked with Antonio Bature down in Miami and Coral Gables at Bature, that really was like, okay, I have to really make laminated pastry a showcase for Buttermilk Ranch. And I knew going into it, for me, New York City is the epicenter of food, obviously, but it's also the epicenter for pastry, really, and trying to compete with Dominique Anzel and all these amazing, amazing pastry chefs and the excessive rent <laughs> of Manhattan becomes very difficult. And my business partners here in Nashville had told me that there was no good pastries here in Nashville, especially laminated pastry. And that was something that I knew that I had to kind of be a game changer in Nashville for. And I knew it had to be a focal point. And that really, truly inspired me to really kind of go full speed into laminated pastry for Nashville. And I mean, currently we have nine different laminations in that pastry case, sometimes 10 to 12. But I, I try and limit it so my staff doesn't go crazy. But the doors open once you have a really, truly great laminated dough, right? You can take whatever you want and make whatever you want out of that laminated dough. It just really, the only thing that hinders it is your creativity. So before we go too, too deep into, you know, Nashville and Buttermilk Ranch, I want to go back to, you know, Frank Falkomer and then Antonio Bashour. So both of them are obviously well-known in the pastry world. But what did Antonio Bashour bring you in terms of experience and skills that, you know, you maybe didn't have with Frank Volcomer and, and the reverse. So there's one really huge thing about laminated pastry. Everyone does it differently. Everyone has their own set of folds. Everyone has their own technique. Everybody, you know, someday, some people it's a three-day process. Some people it's a two-day process. I mean, some people it's a one-day process. Why, so, why is that? Why is that? Truly, I mean, you can have different sets of book folds on laminated pastry, right? Everybody feels like you can get a certain amount of layers. You can get more layers. You can get less layers. Frank is is more traditional. Antonio Bachor is more, you know, when I worked under him, he had developed a way of, you know, his laminations and his folds was more quicker. And I feel like it was something that I needed to adapt to because based upon the amount of production I was going to be doing, I had to kind of cut that time down slightly. My process is still, you know, a two to three day process, but at the same time, my folds are quicker. And it's funny because Antonio Bachor, which we all know is great, Vanosri, and everybody respects him and internationally, truly. 
And, you know, the first thing that Frank told me when he started learning the process that I was doing, he was like, you're not going to get enough layers. Like you need more folds. You need more folds. And when he came to visit for Star Chefs and he finally got to see buttermilk finished, done, you know, he's obviously somebody I talk to on a weekly basis. I send pictures to. I'm like, what's wrong with this? Why is this like this? He's constantly a person that I reach out to. And when he came and he saw it and he was like, oh, okay. You know, because it's interesting because you know a certain way. And when you get a laminated pastry and your dough is right and it's spot on, you don't want to mess with it because you know that it's taken a lot of time, a lot of R&D, a lot of figuring out your temperature, your humidity, your environment, your staff, you know, your machinery. There's so many things that go into it that you'll always have to tweak it slightly for yourself. I've already tweaked, you know, Antonio's recipe because that is the recipe I use is Antonio Bachores, but I've tweaked it some, I've changed the flour some because Obviously, Miami is very different than Nashville. The temperature is different. It rains more Miami here. Humidity is different. Correct. Yeah. So everybody has their own little things that they do differently. And whether it's from the egg wash, to the folds, to how long it's chilled for, who freezes their dough, who doesn't freeze their dough, you know, down to proofing. So, and I'm super lucky to have really great equipment and be able to work with like Irinox and different companies like that to have great equipment that, essentially work for me and yeah it's mean so so for me for instance who is absolutely not a professional at mm-hmm. all in laminating pastry i just love to eat it so <laughs> would i would i see a difference if i put a croissant from you compared to a croissant from Antonio bashur and a one from frank would i see personally like a difference or only the experts will like you guys could to could tell the difference. I think when it comes to the general public, I think that they're going to be probably pretty similar. I think on a pastry chef level, everybody loves that. I mean, everyone's seen it. You watch TikTok or Instagram or Reels, whatever it is. Ever the cut down the center, yep. the reveal of the center, and the cross section. Yes, everyone's cross section is going to be different. And I think that's what's so amazing about laminated pastry, and it's the. Oh, it's almost, it gives you anxiety a little bit because you never know what you're going to, when you cut into it, you never know what it's going to look like. And no croissant, even if it's coming out of the same exact dough, is ever going to look exactly the same. Truly, it's not because between proofing, between folding, baking, all that, they're all going to be slightly different and slightly unique, which I think is amazing. And if you put mine next to, oh, that makes me nervous. If you put <laughs> mine next to Antonio Bachor's and Frank Volkmer's, which they both love me and I respect both of them so much, but I would probably be the most nervous person in the room. I'm, <laughs> I'm not going to lie. I know they're both proud of me, but yeah, I'd be very nervous. And how is it different from, uh, let's say, the croissant that we traditionally make or that I have tasted maybe 20 years ago when I was uh, growing up in France? I would say pretty similar, right? Okay. I think that here in the States, obviously, croissants are bigger. Mm-hmm. Obviously, I feel like every food is bigger here in yeah. the States. Everything is bigger in the U.S. So. <laughs> Everything is bigger, right? I think the difference there, because when you when you talk about traditional French pastry, and for me, it's like I've had, I've had a handful of people come into buttermilk that have been like, I've been to Paris, I've had croissants, and this is literally the best one I've had since Paris. And that, to me, is a huge compliment because... Truly, you know, a croissant in Paris, it's, you know, that is true talent. And that's obviously where it's coming from, where it's stemming from, where we got it from. They're using the best products. And 
those products may not come from France, right? So everybody chooses their own flowers, their own butter. My butter comes from New Zealand. One thing that I truly feel like Frank and Antonio really truly instilled was don't compromise on your product, you know, because ultimately the moment you start compromising on your product, that's when the taste is going to become different. That's when you're not on that next level, right? If you're starting to cut your costs on your butter, which could be very easy to do right now in this market because butter, milk is through the roof for us people in culinary. But if you start compromising on the product that you are putting in, you're never going to be serving the product you want to serve and you won't be on the top tier of where you want to be. Let's uh, stay a little bit on the croissant for for one minute here because I've seen in the past 10 years a lot of things happening in this category that was really very traditional for many, 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 many years. And now it's like fillings and it's like different colors, you know, on the outside. It's, you know, you are making yourself like, I've seen like babka croissant. I've seen your, I've, I've seen and I've tasted your wonderful, your wonderful churro croissant filled with the duce de leche mm. cream. And, you know, <laughs> that can, I can dip in the spice of dark chocolate. So that was, that was wonderful. So what's, what's going on suddenly on, you know, on the croissant front? It's interesting because, you know, when we talk about France, it's very traditional. It's, you know, you see a classic croissant, you see a pain au chocolat, and maybe you'll see an almond croissant, right? It's a twice baked. And really, that's where Benasserie lived. You would see a Danish. I think the Danish became somewhere where different flavors and things came into play. But ultimately, you know, someone like Antonio Bachor going into bi colors, incorporating different colors into his croissants and incorporating different flavors into his croissants really opened the door for a lot of people. And there's a lot of amazing, amazing people that are doing crazy things, which I love. And it's it's fun for me to kind of follow it on social media. And I think that's the glory for chefs with social media because people across the world are doing amazing things and you can find inspiration that way. But I do know that some people and traditionalists and, you know, are going to be appalled by stuffing a croissant because ultimately the whole beauty of a croissant is that cross section. And the moment you fill it and you pack it full of this filling, you lose everything that was the perfection of a croissant, all that hard work that you did, all those layers, all those days of production are essentially gone because you packed it full of mousse and cream and all these things. But this is also the States and people love things bigger, better, more flavor. I think it's trying to find the balance, right? So I always loved a bakery in New York that was called Supermoon. So Supermoon is very, very famous for their twice-baked croissants and their filled croissants. I mean, by colors, filled, twice-baked. I mean, they have a traditional croissant, but 98% of their Benasserie is not traditional at all, at all. Apple pie croissant, you know, pineapple upside down croissant. You know, it's a lot of twice bakes and a lot of like really, truly like filled to the max croissants. Yeah, yeah. For me, you know, I take that. I think their flavor profiles are amazing. I think their croissants are amazing. But for me, it's I try and bridge the gap of keeping it traditional and but at the same time, still going outside the box that you can have those exotic flavors and fun flavors, but still being able to keep the integrity of the croissant that you still know is a croissant. Like it's not filled to the point where all you're eating is filling. Yeah. But, you know, I think I've, I've been obviously 
you know, with my French background, DNA and so on, I, I still feel that fantastic. I mean, that, uh, to see, you know, all the creativity around, you know, the croissant. And uh, it just uh, maybe have to take like one or two, you know, famous pastry chef in Paris to, you know, to bring that trend there. Because if you look at it, you know, all the, tra- the, the, the family, they have their recipes, you know, the French will never eat like the bread from the previous day or the croissant from the day before, you know, it has to be fresh. So, but what we do is with like the old croissant is that we will slice it and then we will fill it with, you know, with uh, Gruyere and then with uh, ham, and then we will put like bechamel sauce in it and we'll put it in the oven. So, so I'm sure like the, the French would be open to, <laughs> you know, to taste some of your wonderful absolutely. I think I should bring that next month when I come back. Yeah. To, uh, to well, one, one thing that I find is interesting, and this is where a lot of my concept for buttermilk ranch was a small batch bakery baking all day long. So a lot of bakeries, especially ones that do venosserie, are going to have somebody come in super early or overnight, do all the proofing, all the baking. Essentially, the moment you walk in the door as a guest at 8 a.m., you know, every croissant is baked, all the cookies are baked, da-da-da-da-da. But if you come in at 2 p.m., you're eating a croissant that was baked, you know, probably at 5, 4 in the morning. That's a completely different croissant. So on my aspect and the goal of Buttermilk Ranch was that anytime that you came into Buttermilk, you're eating something that's no older than two hours out of the oven. Because if you have a croissant that's two hours out of the oven, it's completely different than five hours, six hours, seven hours. Every hour that passes, it's going to be a different product. Not to say it's going to be bad, but that flakiness, that kind of crumble, like make a mess when you eat it, every hour that passes, that goes away. French are really famous for that, right? So it's like you can walk up to a bakery, grab a baguette, and that baguette's an hour old, if that. So, and just like I can dream about eating that, to be honest, and thinking about just butter on a super fresh baguette. Or, you know, I think about, I was just talking about yesterday, I spent some time in Italy and spigadels are one of my oh, literally nice. favorite pastries. Once again, another laminated pastry. Yeah, and it's yeah. something that that's my favorite too, Italian one too. Yeah. I, I grew up I grew up with them. And that's a laminated pastry that I would love to bring into buttermilk as well. And I just haven't had the time yet because it's gonna take a lot of training for my staff. But I had never in my life until I went to Naples had them like right out of the oven to the point of like walking down a street and just eating a spigadelle and it be like warm out of the oven. And that alone, that memory truly got me onto this path of, okay, how do I give every person that feeling or try to give every person that feeling? And because it's a different, it's a different feeling. It's a different attachment to food. It's a it's a, it evokes an emotion and, you know. Absolutely. And that's, that's a memory that you want to reproduce. You are, I've been talking about like the buttermilk ranch, you know, in Nashville. So, and, and you already shared a lot about it, but can you tell us a little bit what's the concept and something that you have opened in partnership, correct, with uh, Daniel Scott Gorman? Yes. Yeah. So, Buttermilk Ranch, we opened in October. I moved from New York City three and a half years ago from Manhattan, came down to Nashville specifically to open the Buttermilk Ranch. And 
it took me three and a half years. COVID definitely set us back a good year. Definitely. Buttermilk is something for me that I knew going into it, you know, bakeries are almost like a dying breed right now, only because we have such amazing grocery stores here now in the States that essentially it eliminates somewhere that you have to go. Whole Foods, these boutique grocery stores, they have amazing pastry programs and they have amazing bakeries for the most part. And it's a one-stop shop for people, right? So for me, buttermilk had to be an experience. Number one, it had to showcase pastry on a different level that Nashville had never seen. But it also had to give them a culinary experience as well that really matched and married very well with pastry, right? Because I always feel that pastry is, you know, you have an amazing restaurant and you have an amazing menu, but then you have great pastries, but they don't really mesh, right? So... Our goal, Daniel and I, was to try and figure out how we can take amazing pastry and amazing savory, bring them together and create a great product that nobody else has uh, in this city or outside the city. I mean, we weren't really limiting ourselves to trying to be the best in Nashville. We truly want to be the best we can possibly be. And we worked on a lot of different things together. We pretty much are indeed for about a month and a half to two months straight, just in that building, him and I just trying to hammer through things and try and figure anything we possibly could out and trying to develop things that nobody else had, right? You want a breakfast sandwich that what's going to separate your breakfast sandwich from everyone else? What's going to separate, you know, us from the person down the street? Yes, the laminated pastry is amazing and it's better than anybody else in the city, but how do we elevate that? How do we bring it to the next level? And that was, I I put a lot of pressure on him from the get-go and he took it with stride. He definitely did. And I think it inspired him as well. And I'm super proud of like where he's gotten to with this menu and where he's going with this menu. I mean, the menu is, is, is fantastic. I mean, when I, I had to, you know, for, you know, a specific exercise that we had to do, to do with Star Chef that I had to pick and choose like three items or four on the menu. And that was a torture because, <laughs> because this menu is so good and you want to really test, you know, like and taste, sorry, like, you know, an, an example of each things that you have. But there's one thing that was so amazing that, you know, I still talk to, I think I'm going to continue to talk about it to everyone that I meet. It's, <laughs> you know where I'm going with this. Mm-hmm. It's the cube. The cube, it's that, that was like a discovery. That was like amazing. You know, really, it's, it's a, a base like for a variety of concepts that are here to, you know, to continue to grow. And I would love to you to, uh, to explain to people listening what the cube is about. So the cube became a phenomenon here. I, I, we never thought it would take off the way that it did, to be honest. So when we opened in October, we opened with just our front counter. So we have a, we have a hundred seat restaurant, but we opened with our quick service counter. So our restaurant is split between two Two kind of two concepts. You have a quick service savory counter with our small batch bakery that you can walk up, grab and go, or you can grab a number, sit down, they can bring it out to you. But then the other half of our restaurant is a full dining experience. We open with just that front counter quick service to start because of staffing, because we wanted to make sure that we got that portion right before opening up the floodgates to everything else, because we knew that it was going to get crazy. We knew that it was going to be lines out the door 
It was a very anticipated opening and we wanted to make sure that everything was absolutely perfect. And I had my hands on everything. Chef Daniel had his hands on everything. And I think it was the right move to begin with. So with that being said, we launched with, you know, obviously a 15 item menu for that quick service, but one of which was going to be a breakfast sandwich. And we kept saying to ourselves, what type of breakfast sandwich do we want to do? What's going to separate ourselves from everyone else? What from Egg Slut to, you know, all these amazing places that do really great breakfast sandwiches that people dream about. How do we separate ourselves? How do we create something that everyone's going to talk about? And for so long, we just were trying to think outside the box and trying to think, what can we do that's different, but also at the same time, something that's familiar to people because it's still breakfast. And it's still something that in our eyes had to be quick service, that they had to pick up. They can come in and within six to seven minutes, they got their breakfast sandwich because if they were on their way to work or coming to have a quick breakfast, we wanted it to be quick. So what was going to make ours better than everyone else? And I always laugh when I say we were thinking outside the box, but then we went inside the box. Exactly. You put the croissant in the box. Yes, we did. (laughs) So we were in a discussion in the very beginning and it was myself and Chef Daniel and my sous chef, Jeremy Britt. And we were talking and just kind of spitting ideas off each other and, you know, trying to figure out what are we going to do? Like, is it going to be a steamed egg? Is it not a steamed egg? Are we cooking it to order? Are we not? Once again, we have great access to amazing equipment and we feel super lucky with that. And I just was like, I think that I'm going to say something right now and I'm going to regret it. But I had seen the cube done before. I had seen the molds. I had never seen it done in a sandwich form. I had only seen larger versions of the cube. Like people do it as like kind of loaves or like a long Pullman loaf. Um, Traditionally, Pullmans you'll see in long, long loaves, perfect rectangle. Then Asia developed a a square, perfect square Pullman. So you, but it's normally an eight by eight, a five by five is normally the smallest one. I went on the hunt because I threw the idea out there in the pot and they, and you know, Chef Daniel was like, yes, we're doing it. I'm like, no, 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 no. Hold on, hold on. I still have to, ex- I have to execute it, you know? So I went on the hunt to try and find these molds, which now this is, you know, towards the end of pandemic. So getting things was very difficult. Plates, all equipment was very difficult to get, still difficult to get. I was able to get my hands on 20 cube molds and they were three by three. And very hard to get. It took me a little while to get them. I got them. And then it was just, we hit the ground running, testing what kind of folds are we going to do? How are we going to execute this? And it was one of those weird things that I knew that I had a great dough. I knew that the dough was perfect. I knew that the dough could handle it. I just didn't know every venosserie when you do certain folds and how you roll it from, you know, a rectangle croissant to a traditional croissant to, you know, a, if you're taking that and turning it into a venosserie pastry, like a Danish, you're doing different folds, different cuts, things like that. So that takes some R and D. Weirdly enough, I mean, we got it on like the second try. I mean, no, that, really? norm- that normally oh doesn't my. happen, but we did. And I think it made Chef Daniel a little nervous because then it sped up and had, he had to speed up his process of like figuring out what we we're going to put inside of it. But I researched and I tried to find other people that were making this cube. But like I said, I, I couldn't really find it. I found some people that were just making the cube itself, slicing it, using it as bread, stuff like that. What I loved and 
after and through our research and development is that this cube that's a croissant doesn't have the texture of a croissant. It has almost a crossbreed texture between almost like a, a bread brioche and a croissant kind of married together. And I think that that's what makes it perfect because it holds up. It still has the crispiness of a croissant, still has the butteriness of a croissant, but almost a different texture that can hold up to a sandwich, to a steamed egg. Because once again, when you really start truly trying to develop a perfect product that savory and pastry are married perfectly together, you have to, you really do have to think outside the box and you have to really think about the flavors and the texture of what you're doing from the egg to you know, the bacon jam that we have on there to the croissant, to the cheese, to everything. And it really, we went full steam ahead. Once that cube was executable and we tried it and, you know, we loved it, it was full steam ahead. This is what we're going to do. This is what's going to separate us. And it just went crazy. (laughs) And we, uh, we opened and we were doing about 200 plus cubes a day. But you got to keep in mind, we only at that time had 26 molds, I think. And when you do a set of cubes, they take uh, about two and a half hours to proof and then another 30 minutes to bake and then another about 45 minutes to kind of cool down completely before you can use them. So when you're doing 200 plus cubes a day and you only have like 26 molds and you got to hope that all of them come out perfectly and you're, we were literally, Proofing, baking, popping them out, putting raw dough in, proofing, baking, popping them out, putting raw dough. Like we were all day long, constantly proofing, baking cubes. And it took me a long time. It took me a couple months to get more molds because they were very specific molds and I had to get them from China. And obviously there was a lot of issues getting things from China at that point. And we got more and it was like Christmas morning. I've tasted the cube with obviously a savory recipe as a breakfast sandwich. Have you have you done as well some for the, for the restaurant part, but like you know recipe with more sweets like fillings? So my first one that we did, I really kind of once again wanted to go outside the box and kind of get really weird with it, but also still familiar flavor profiles. And the first one we did was a cookie monster. So. We basically took that, we took that cube and the way that we do the fold, we basically took raw chocolate chip cookie dough and worked it into each fold. So that way when you baked it and it proofed up like the cube, it looked like the cube. But then when you cut into it, it had three layers of chocolate chip cookie dough within there. And then we topped it, we topped it with like a whipped, a whipped chocolate ganache, a chocolate caramel ganache, some 100% dark chocolate and some cookie crumbles. So. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> serve warm serve warm with some fresh gelato. Yes, it's on oh, a yeah, different yeah, yeah. level. Different level. Okay. So you were talking before about, you know, uh, looking at the Instagram. This is great because you can see what, uh, you know, everyone is doing from around the world. What what are the your other sources of inspiration? I would say so a lot of my inspiration comes from Asia. I think that they do a lot of really outside the box lamination. When, when you say, sorry to interrupt, when you say Asia, do you mean Japan and Korea, for instance? Mm-hmm. Or Yes. Yeah. I mean, Dominic Anzell, I think the best thing he ever did was go into Hong Kong market. Like, I think that him getting into Hong Kong was huge because it opened the door to pretty much doing anything. 
from packaging to flavors. I love Asian flavors and I love the incorporation of like use like yuzu, all these amazing flavors. And I mean, sweet and savory. But I think that I love Korean pastries. That's one place, you know, that I loved in New York City was K-Town. And because some of the best pastries outside of obviously Dominique and all these great people, but K-Town, you know, in Midtown Manhattan, you mean that whole entire street of Korean bakeries is mind-blowing. You mean the things that they do and the flavor profiles, and they are spot on. And I really, truly respect Asian pastry because it's really, the technique is so exquisite. And sometimes you don't need to mask things with a bunch of flavor. It's just the technique itself and, you know, the bicolor, the, their folds, their shapes, different things like that. I'm not really, I'm kind of a person that like people buy me cookbooks all the time as like gifts and stuff like that. I'm not really a person that like, reads recipes or anything like that. I just like flip through and I love the pictures because it just kind of sparks a different idea for me. And everybody kind of laughs because they're like, wait a minute, I gave you that and you came up with this completely different thing. It just kind of opens your mind, right? It, it really truly, when you're a person that creativity is your craft, it just, the door is open and the world's your oyster, right? You mean you can be as creative as you want to be. What is your latest ingredient obsession? My latest ingredient in, in, inspiration is savory right now. And it is, so Chef Daniel does a chili crunch and I'm still trying to figure out how to work a chili crunch into a croissant. I put it on everything. I literally put it on my French fries. I put it on my grit bowl in the morning. He does a ham tar and I literally make myself a grit bowl with his soy marinated egg, the chili crunch, more chili crunch than I probably need to put on there and his ham tar. But I'm trying to figure out how I can incorporate chili crunch into a croissant because I love chili crunch. I think it's so vibrant in flavor. I love the texture of it. It's not overly spicy for people that are, you know, kind of scared of spice, but I love spice. I think spice is amazing. So I, I love this chili crunch. I'm borderline obsessed with it. But right now, that one's kind of been a roadblock for me. I haven't been able to figure that one out. So that's my obsession right now because I'm trying to figure it out. But we just introduced a mango habanero croissant and we did it with an orange bicolor and we kind of did it in a different way. We did a kind of a really cool braided uh, fold and then we rolled it up. So it's got all these kind of cool layers in there. Oh, wow. But Fresh Origins, which is a company that does all microgreens and micro herbs and stuff like that, they were one of my sponsors for Star Chefs and they kind of opened the door to a lot of different amazing products for me. And right now I am working with their flavor crystals. So they sent me a bunch of flavor crystals and said, hey, like kind of develop some things with this. We want your feedback on it. And I'm playing with their habanero crystals, which I haven't had any of the crystals that I didn't love because they're so packed full of flavor. But they are like just little bits of sugar almost that have such a punch of flavor. And for me, it's really interesting because I can melt it and incorporate it into a cream or a custard. I can also sprinkle it on top and it has crunchy texture, but with this like pop of flavor. And right now we have this mango habanero croissant. So it's got a mango cream cheese mousse in there. And then also a mango gelée that's got habaneros incorporated into that. And then it gets those habanero crystals on top. And it is, it's one of my favorites. Yeah. I have to fly back to Nashville. I know. I know. <laughs> oh my gosh. I, I'm a person that I... 
I think people are starting to get mad because I get bored very easily and I change things a lot. And sometimes like these things that people love don't stay very long. I just introduced a everything bagel croissant and it's filled with a vegetable cream cheese because I miss New York and I've been dreaming of a everything bagel toasted with everything (laughs) with vegetable cream cheese. And I said, well, there's no reason we can't put it in a croissant. So somebody looked at me the other day and was like, don't ever take this off the menu. And I was like, I can't guarantee that. I'll get get bored with it. And then something else. And then it'll leave and then it'll come back at some point. Okay. I would like to you to define a little bit uh, for us like the different type of pastry because we have been talking about laminated pastry. Mm-hmm. The one thing about buttermilk that was super important to me was I truly wanted a place where there was multiple different levels and applications of pastry. Because I love all, I mean, uh, don't get me wrong, I love vanasserie and I think it's amazing, but I also love chocolate and I also love entremets and I also love gelato. And, I mean, like, I am all over the map and I fault Frank Volkmer for that because, you know, that's how he is and he created this monster in me. But buttermilk has so many different levels of pastry, which I love. Obviously, I was nervous because there's not a lot of pastry talent in Nashville, but at the same time, it's become a giant learning environment for my staff and I've gotten a lot of great staff come through and I've been able to retain a lot of staff because... They're coming here to be able to learn all these different applications. Yes, we have nine to 10 different, you know, laminated pastries every day. But at the same time, we have four different types of cookies, sometimes five, all baked every day, all baked all day. And then we have a whole another case with about nine different entremets. So I love entremets. It's a passion of mine. I think you have multiple different levels of application there and having you know, five different components into one small individual dessert kind of takes it to that next level, right? You've got a cake, you've got a, you have a gelée insert, you have a mousse, you have a ganache, you have a glaze, you have a chocolate garnish, you know, you have a crunch aspect. And those entremets are something that do not exist here in Nashville. And I was super happy to try and bring that here and kind of open up Nashville's eyes to it. But also Nashville is a big place for tourism. And Nashville, you know, sitting and speaking to, you know, Chef Sean Brock and things like that. And it's like, what can we do every day to try and elevate our game, right? What can we do to to elevate not just our game, but to inspire everyone around us as restaurateurs or cooks or chefs to inspire them to elevate, inspire them to be better every single day. And I, t- I tell my staff every single day at Lineup that if we're not better every single day, we're not doing our job, right? And if we can come to work and enjoy what we do every day, this that's amazing. And we'll be better just in general because of that. So, I mean, you have a lot of different applications. You know, we've got the entremets, we have cookies, we have cakes, we have banasserie. There's a whole gelato section, which I'd say right now, I love our gelato. I think our gelato is amazing. I have a really amazing Carpegiani machine, a continuous gelato churning, which keeps it churned fresh all day long. So no matter what time of day you come into buttermilk, you're literally getting freshly churned gelato in that moment. And that was super important because we wanted to keep that whole fresh baked all the time fresh. We had to carry that through, right? I had to carry that through to the savory. We had to carry that through to pastry. And when it came to ice cream, you know, you think, okay, fresh right out of the machine. That's the best time to have ice cream, right? That application, I'd say, has been 
the has been given the least amount of attention right now because there's so much attention onto the Venoscary and elimination. And it's not too long ago that you opened your place. So. <laughs> yes, correct, correct. And also now we're into summer, so the gelato is about to take off and we're going to be doing a lot of Italian sodas, floats. You know, we obviously do shakes and stuff like that, but really kind of taking that to the next level. And I'm super excited for that for my staff because they're starting to learn about, you know, gelato and bases, sorbettos, different things like that. <laughs> Alisa, I've mentioned to you that like every guest that I have on the podcast, I ask them for, I pick their brain to a suggestion like a home cook, um, you know, like myself, foodie can prepare something, you know, at home. So you were suggesting maybe sharing like a recipe guideline for a seasonal cake. Yeah. Something that's super important to me, obviously, is seasonality, right? So, I mean, obviously, I'm a person that changes a lot and I change up things as much as I can to kind of keep it exciting for me, but also to utilize what's best now, right? And I love Tennessee, one, because of the strawberries. I think the strawberries here are amazing, but also it's a very short window of time. It's essentially the month of May and then you're done, but it's some of the best strawberries I've ever had. But it also inspires me to make as many different recipes as I possibly can with them and try and utilize them in a lot of different aspects, right? Now I'm coming into peaches and I absolutely love South Carolina peaches. I think they're so good. You know, the cling peaches, yellow peaches, white peaches, I'm obsessed. Love it. So I just recently developed a brown sugar bourbon peach cake and it is almost a cross between a coffee cake and like a really nice, like moist brown sugar cake. It is kind of a cross. I'm always a person that kind of bridges the gap between two different things because it kind of allows you to have a different texture. It's loaded with a lot of chopped fresh peaches. And what I love about it is that it's so interchangeable. I did it with apples. I did it with peaches. I've done it with pears. So I kind of float through. I've realized I can float through the seasons with it and really truly kind of incorporate different nuts into it, different streusels into it. I love it as like a breakfast muffin style. I've loved it as, you know, a coffee cake. I've also loved it as just like dessert at night with some vanilla gelato, you know. But for me, it's about the levels of flavor. And it's about developing and taking really, really great fresh products that are local to you or around you, whether it, you know, whether it is, you know, you live in New York and it's apples or pears or peaches or plums, really any stone fruit, really. And taking that and kind of doing something different with it, not just, you know, going and getting, you know, fresh local fruit and turning it into jam or so just having do, it. How do I do that cake? How do you do it? So the best part is that I developed it for for basically home cooking and it is so easy. You really kind of can't mess it up. It's brown sugar, eggs, oil in a stand mixer or even whisk by hand, to be honest. Once you add all that, you're going to add all of your dry ingredients, which is your flour, your salt, your leavening agents, your spices. So this one's got like just simple cinnamon. I didn't go crazy with spices. I went with cinnamon and, and vanilla. And then a lot, like a lot of diced peaches, like big, nice dices. Just so like every time you get a bite, you get a big bite of fruit in there. It's basically like, you could throw all those ingredients in a bowl, mix them together, and it would still come out perfect. Yes. That is always my goal, right? Because everybody comes to me when it comes to home baking and everyone's like, I'm so scared. I'm scared. I'm scared. I'm scared. 
don't be scared. I mean, like baking is something that's very therapeutic. It's something that, yes, it's a science. Yes, it has to be measured properly for it to come out correctly. But ultimately, it's something that's supposed to be enjoyable and it's supposed to be a break from reality. It This recipe is a very simple recipe. I mean, we're talking about flour, eggs, salt, peaches. You know what I mean? Like it's it's so simple, but it's so good. But it's also going back to that don't compromise on your ingredients. Like go to the farmer's market, see what they have and work around that, you know? And and sometimes it's not fruit. Sometimes it's zucchini. Sometimes, you know, sometimes it's carrots. And I'm a big vegetable in baking. Like I love it. Like a chocolate chip zucchini bread, I love. Like, you know, it's it's about... It's also about like taking your creative side and kind of taking that and spinning with it and taking this base recipe and saying, okay, I love oats. I want to put oats in my streusel. I love walnuts. I'm going to incorporate some walnuts into this. And I think that's the fun part about baking is trying to take a recipe that you know, base recipe, super good, works, flawless. How do I manipulate it and make it my own? So before we go into the, um, the rapid fire question, what is the Mimi's adventure in baking? Mm-hmm. <laughs> I've yeah. seen I've seen those like on your shelves, like uh, in the store. That's really cute. So, is it something about bringing the children to baking? So, I have been doing this. I've been baking and doing pastry for almost twenty years now, and I can't believe I, I can't believe it's been that long. But it has. I graduated culinary school when I was eighteen, so I always wanted to write a cookbook. Truly. And I have amazing recipes from amazing people. I've manipulated almost every single one of them. I've done a lot of R&D and I'm a big goal-oriented person. I think that if you don't set goals for yourself and you don't constantly try and be better every single day, that you're going to become stagnant. And my one of my big goals was to write a book. And I was fortunate enough to live in New York City when I was trying to do that. And I went to a Writer's Digest conference and I did a pitch fest. And I was told that I had 90 seconds to basically pitch myself and my concept. And maybe an agent would like me, maybe they wouldn't. And I just, I knew that I had to do something that was going to separate myself from everybody else. And I would constantly walk up and down the aisles of Barnes & Noble in Manhattan on 86th Street. And... Literally, I'm like, what is going to separate me from the thousands and other cookbooks? It just, you have to stand out somehow, right? I don't have children. I have a lot of nieces and nephews and godkids. And I was getting a gift for somebody and I went into the children's section and I realized that there was a very large gap for children's cookbooks. And a lot of it was, you know, make a peanut butter and jelly sandwich, cut it in the shape of a dinosaur or like, you know, let's make, you know, mac and cheese or whatever it was. It was, it was very like, very simple. And it kind of sparked in my head. And I was like, okay, well, like maybe I go this route. Maybe I go a route where it's more kid driven because ultimately baking has so much STEM learning in it, right? You have math, you have science, you have counting, you have following directions, you know, you measuring safety. Like there's so many aspects of early development learning within baking. Not to mention you're doing something with your child or, you know, or your niece or nephew, and it's a hands-on experience. And I obviously, I live, eat, breathe, hands-on. That's my life. And I really, truly just kind of dove into it and started thinking, how do I translate this into 
into a children's book. And I started looking, I started researching, and I, I was like, it would be really interesting to turn it into a picture book. And it to be a picture book where children learn how to bake through a story. And at the end of the story, they'll have the recipe along with a variation guide because the whole purpose of baking is to be creative, right? So I grew up very fortunate. I grew up learning how to bake with my with my mom, my grandmother, and I grew up in a very large Italian family. And food was the center. It was the focus. And I learned so much. And I it really truly made me who I am today. And for me, it's like, how do I take that and translate that into a book. And truly, I mean, Mimi's Adventures in Baking is that. And my family called me Mimi growing up. And it's it's funny to them now because they always call me Mimi because apparently when I was younger, all I could say was me, 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 me. So Mimi stuck and still is here and is a is on the cover of books at this point. How many books but do you have out? No. Currently I have four. four? Uh, I'm writing a fifth, but I don't really have a lot of time right now. The fifth one will be Biscuits because it's very, I think it'll be really great for Nashville. You're in Nashville now, yes, sure. Yes, so I have to find a little bit more time, but it is a, it's a passion project for me and it's something to kind of, once again, I, I don't like staying stagnant. I like trying to push myself and be better every single day. And those books have been something that have brought me a lot of joy and a lot of other people joy and kids and families. And it's like super... Super great for me, and I really, That's I really cool. truly enjoy it, and it's it's awesome. Very good, congrats! That's really thank cool. you, thank you. Okay, so rapid fire question before I let you go. Oh, I'm excited <laughs> to all your adventure, your Mimi's adventure. So you and I are going on a tasting tour in Nashville. What are like the five spots that you are going to take me to outside of Buttermilk Ranch? The five spots I'm going to take you to in Nashville. Okay. Well, number one, you have to go to Arnold's Country Kitchen because it's a staple. One of James Beard Awards. I love Cleo. I think Cleo's a great person. Okay, Arnold's. Obviously, in you, we have to go to either Audrey or Continental because John Brock, John Brock yeah, is sure. you know the epicenter of Nashville, and I think he's a great chef. And I'd say Audrey because you have to see his lab, and uh, you know I'm trying to get into the lab. You know, <laughs> of even course. if I have, even if I have to break in. Okay, where else we're we gonna go? We are going to go to, so uh, my favorite sushi is Sonobano. It is like kind of off the map in Nashville. It's in a shopping center, but it's amazing. And they do great, 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 great sushi. And if you're lucky enough, they'll have like a fish collar. I love fish collar. Oh, man. Like, that's roasted. Great. Yeah. I like, yeah. love it. Locust is, everybody wants to go to Locust. You know, it's it's on the map for everybody. It's on 12 South. And it's, I mean... It's the hot spot. Besides Buttermilk Ranch, it's the hot spot and people can't get into it. And that's a that's a good one. I say my next one, honestly, it's hard. I can't I can't not throw it in my sister restaurant, Urban Grub. So I'm gonna that I'm gonna give you six because I can't not throw in Urban Grub because you know, Urban Grub's the secret secret with no sign outside. My last really, really great dining experience here was Carne Mar. And it is in the W Hotel. And I'm not normally a person that's like hotel restaurant person, but they really, truly, like, great meal all around. Wine was great. Steak was great. Just like, they did a really, really, really great job. And I think they do super good. It's hard to keep it to five. Man. <laughs> I have so many more. Oh, my God. People are going to listen to this and they're going to be like, Alyssa, you didn't put us in your top five. Yeah, but it's, yeah, there's so many more. What's your favorite, favorite guilty pleasure food? 
I'm a huge French fry person. I love, I'm obviously surrounded by sweets all the time. So I'm always salty. Like I love like potato chips or French fries. Like with French chili crisps on top. Now I know. I see, but yes. <laughs> so I take my crinkle cut fries and I, I douse them. No, actually, Chef Daniel makes them for me and they are crinkle cut fries with uh-huh. the chili crunch and a hot mayo and some cheese. Mm-hmm. Yes. <laughs> there are three cookbooks that inspire you the most in your career. But Chore Baker. Little Black Book by Michael Zabrowski. He was an instructor of mine at CIA. He has two of them now. I think they're a great book. Literally, that is like my go-to gift to any person that's going into pastry, is new into pastry. It's just solid. And like really just, once again, I'm all about like good, solid recipes that you can build off of. What else? I've got one that's called Thai Street Food. And it's this big, like big book. And... I spent like a month in Southeast Asia. So like I love international cuisine and like it like kind of just gets my brain going. I know that sounds really weird that I'm telling you that Thai street food is my no, <laughs> yeah, no, sure. book yeah. for a pastry chef. But Why not? yeah. Sure. Mean, okay. What's your biggest pet peeve in the kitchen? Sense of urgency. <laughs> I I have a couple of pet peeves. Sense of urgency is my pet peeve, cleanliness, organization. I mean, mise en place is huge, right? I mean, everything in its place. And truly to be successful, like you have to set yourself up for success. And if you don't set yourself up for success, you're just, you're going to drown. And especially if you're in a busy environment. And I just, I never understood that. Like why not set yourself up for success? Why not try and set somebody else up for success? That goes into that pet peeve. I mean, if you're working a station and you're not resetting that station to set somebody else up for success, nobody's going to do that for you. And I mean, there's some type of weird joy that I get when you like open up your station. It's like completely set and beautiful and full. It's just, it's a really great feeling. But lately in this weird industry of like, we've lost a lot of really great people in hospitality due to COVID, sense of urgency. I've seen a lot of lack of sense of urgency. That's a giant pet peeve. Chef, thank you very much. I really appreciate your time and the great story that you had to share. You're so welcome. It was my pleasure. I was happy to be here. Thank you for listening today. If you go to Nashville, stop by at Buttermilk Ranch and try anything from their menu. It's amazing. If you want to bake with your children or grandchildren or nephew or nieces, Please order the series Mimi's Adventure in Baking from Chef Alisa Gonjeri. My guest next week will be Chef Joe Sasto, expert in pasta making and well-known personality from TV shows like Chopped and Top Chef. I see you in two weeks. And until then, remember that people who love to eat are always the best people. Thanks for listening to Flavors Unknown. If you've enjoyed this episode, give us a follow on Instagram at FlavorsUnknown and visit us at FlavorsUnknown.com. Don't forget to leave us a five-star rating and a review on Apple Podcasts.